All right, so I'm excited about what we're talking about today. Uh, we are going to continue with talking about the ministry of Jesus, but before I get into that, I'll kind of remind us where we're at in this series. We're doing a series called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel, and we are on uh, element five, and, uh, and we are on the um, 17th week of element five, so we're at element 5Q. We're lettering them as we go, and Q is the 17th letter in the English alphabet. So uh, today we'll be, I'm not going to review it all. Uh, the, the podcasts are on our website. The, you can email me uh, for outlines. We're building a new website that'll have the outlines right on the website, so I can't wait for that to happen. And uh, in the meantime, we've been looking at the ministry of Jesus for oh, eight or so weeks, nine weeks, something like that. And last week, uh, if you look at Roman numeral four there, last week we looked at how Jesus fulfilled all the law and the prophets. Now, uh, that's a huge point because uh, that's not brought up much in contemporary circles. And um, it's one of the many reasons that the Old Testament has fallen into disuse. And the, the more you begin to understand, how, you know, like you'll hear people say uh, that Jesus fulfilled like 300 or so prophecies. And the, really the number is more like 33,000. So um, it, it's, it's certainly in the thousands, not in the hundreds. And so the more you understand how to, how to see Jesus in the Old Testament following the way the apostles did when they wrote the New Testament the more you'll enjoy your Old Testament because the whole point of the Christian life is to know, love, and adore Jesus Christ. And the more you know, love, and adore Jesus Christ, everything in your life will come into order out of your, out of your love for God. You were created to think about God, to meditate on God. Um, I was talking to someone this week who was uh, didn't know this terminology, but they were wrestling with a theological concept as they were reading a lot more scripture lately and they had had some breakthroughs where they were really on fire for God. And uh, they were saying, you know, I was thinking about the things about, you know, the Trinity and how they're all co-equal persons and so forth. And then I was thinking about their different ministries and so forth. And so I talked to, uh, to them about uh, the idea called the ontological Trinity versus the economic Trinity. And the ontological Trinity is the study of the nature of God's being, that he is three distinct persons, co eternally existent, co-equal, and so forth. But the economic trinity is talking about how they have different roles and functions in their ministry and in their relationship together and so forth. And so, but, the you know, we went on from talking about that briefly to talking about I was so glad that this person is wrestling with this stuff in the scriptures, and that's what they're enjoying doing doing. Because you were made for that. You know, in the story of Martha and Mary, uh, Martha is distracted with her many preparations. And interestingly enough, she's serving Jesus. Jesus is coming over, and she's wanting to make sure the house is just right, the meal's just right, and everything's just how Jesus wants it. Not bad. Uh, but Mary is sitting at the Lord's feet listening to his word. 
And when Martha complains that she ought to be doing some of the help, because, you know, that you will find a whole lot of reasons that will pressure you out of sitting at the Lord's feet or us, uh, listening to his word, Jesus rebukes not Mary for not helping, but Martha, and says, you know, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things, but really only one thing is essential. And Mary has chosen the better part, which uh, she will not allow to get taken away from her. So I say, let the house be messy and read the word. <laughs> uh, and uh, if you can afford it, hire someone else to do the laundry. But, uh, <laughs> but seek God. And uh, so you were made for that. And what's an interesting fact, like people always want to know, well, how do you grow in the Christian life? I was talking to some pastors who consulted me because their eldership was... Uh, talking about um, spiritual formation and how do you help young Christians grow uh, and form Christ in their life. And really, the mo- it's, it's a kind of a mystery, but actually the more you meditate on God, the more you enjoy his presence, the more you have spiritual experiences that are real, concrete, tangible, and powerful by the Holy Spirit to look at the face of Jesus, the more you worship and enjoy him, and think and consider God, the more you become who you're always meant to be. Because we're actually transformed into his image from glory to glory. The more we think about God and meditate on God and experience God, that is actually a bigger answer than counseling and all sorts of other things. Uh, Not that some of those other things aren't good. So anyway, uh, that's a good defense for why we're uh, 17 weeks just thinking about Jesus. Actually, I hope to eventually write just the Jesus parts of this series into a book that I'm going to call Consider Jesus, because both Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 12 tell us to consider Jesus or think about Jesus. So anyway, last week, as we were looking at the Law and the Prophets, uh, we read a bunch of scriptures. I'm just going to mention two of them to us. Acts 10.43 when Peter is talking to the Gentiles uh, at Cornelius' house, he summarizes Jesus' ministry by saying of, or but the ESV and the NASV say to, to him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. But the key line there, to him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness. That's what the, all the prophets are about. Uh you know, Peter talks about that in the verses I've listed right above there. You can look them up again for yourself or listen to last week's message. Luke 24, in Jesus' two appearances on the first day, he appeared three times on Resurrection Sunday, and um, uh, the, the, the you know Easter, the first day of the week, whatever you want to call it. The day of the resurrection, he appeared to three groups of disciples at three different times. The second and third appearance are recorded in Luke 24, and in verse 27, it says, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Then later that night, when he appears in the upper room to, to the rest of the disciples, he says that these are my words which I spoke to you. In fact, he the, the previous verse, which I didn't include because I can only fit so much on two pages, he rebukes them and says, O oh, foolish of heart and slow to believe all the prophets said. In other words, he's saying, you should have known from reading your Old Testament that I was going to suffer and that I was going to rise. That was not an expectation of the religious Bible-believing Jews. What you'll find, the more you study the Bible-believing cultures, especially of today and of the time of Christ, 
the more you'll find out that many of the things that Bible-believing thing, people believe have nothing to do with the Bible and can't be documented in the Bible. And, and for the most part, we're missing large portions of the Bible's message. And so that's really kind of part of the heart of Grace Christian Fellowship is to, is to seek, study hard and seek that out and, and restore that to us. We want to know what the Bible's really saying, not what uh, our culture expectations are that aren't necessarily biblical. So he says, all things are, which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So uh, one, one of the biggest parts of that was the, the Jews just could not believe that God would chastise his people and therefore, they didn't believe in a Messiah that could suffer. And so when Jesus suffered the way he did, mo most Jews could never wrap their head around it because it wasn't according. They had a very similar concept to our kingdom prosperity gospel today. And they just couldn't understand that, that God chastens every son he receives. And um, they, they couldn't get their mind around the fact they were saying, if this guy is of God, how could he have suffered so much? All right, so today we're going to move on from there and just actually build on that concept. That's why I wanted to review that part just a little, because we're going to basically talk about the continue with the ministry of Jesus down at the bottom on the first page. I'm, I'm calling this the quintessential Christ. That is, he's the ultimate, and he's the alpha and omega. We're going to explain that. So first I want to define quintessential. That's a word you see a lot if you read uh, different kinds of literature, history, philosophy, uh, art, uh, you would, you know, uh, they might, uh, music, the stuff you, you would hear like, this is the quintessential, uh, you know, you might say Van Gogh or, uh, Monet, you might, was the quintessential impressionist painter or something like that. So what it means is this, the, the pure and essential essence or the most perfect embodiment, the ideal in the most refined or typical or representative example of a being or thing. So quintessential, if it's not in your vocabulary, you should add it. It's a great word. You, you'll find once you have it in your vocabulary, you're using it all the time. Because you're saying it's, it's the true essence. It's the, the most perfect embodiment of this. You know, uh, books are great, but the Bible is the quintessential book of the Christian life, you might say. So... Uh, flipping over, keep that in mind that we're talking about the quintessential Christ today. Uh, and we're talking about how the Old Testament shows us the quintessential Christ. Really, the Old Testament should be called the Hebrew Scriptures. We call it the, the Old Testament. I still use that because that communicates with people. But it really should be called the Hebrew Scriptures because what we call the Old Testament didn't actually start until uh, 70 chapters into the Jewish Scriptures. So... Uh, you know, that's that's uh, a point worth thinking about. But in any case, uh, flipping over, uh, we're going to look at another way of saying this. We're going to look at the ministry of Jesus as the Christ included both by being and by manifesting the quintessential characteristics of these the following things. So if you look at our the subtitle, we talked about the ultimate man, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate sojourner, savior, high priest, lawgiver, judge, and king, right? That's on your subtitle. Flipping over, we're looking at how Jesus is the ultimate or the quintessential, all those things and more. I expanded the list a little bit. He's the ultimate human being, the ultimate prophet, sojourner, savior, high priest, lawgiver, judge, and king. 
And uh, I've listed eight roles there, but as we go through them, uh, we're going to hit about 12 roles of Jesus, that, uh, that he is the prototype. So when you get into, uh, when I uh, wanted to do a different word than quintessential, I used the word ultimate in the subtitle. The problem I had is this. Uh, there was no word I could find that quite did it, because the word that we're, we'd be looking for would mean the ultimate, the ideal, the typical, it would mean the prototypical, uh, the archetypical, the final, the conclusive, the perfect, the essential, the perfect, the supreme, the supplying, the divine, and, and I could go on and on. I misspelled divine there. Um, so, um, so what we're talking about is, uh, the, is sometimes said in Scripture that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's referred to that in Revelation. And people will say, people will kind of um, diminish what that means a little bit by having a quick definition of, it, of he's the beginning and the end. And it's like when we talk about grace, we say grace is, is divine, uh, unmerited favor. That's true, but it's not complete enough. Because uh, grace is actually through the love of God and the empowerment of God uh, the 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 power to be born again and to be uh, and to be conformed to the image of Christ to do the will of God to to enter into the community of the redeemed to to become part of God's uh, plans in the earth and to become Christ-like and obedient and so forth. Grace is much more than unmerited favor. It starts with unmerited favor, and likewise, understanding Jesus as quintessential Alpha and Omega. Yes, that means he's the beginning in the sense that he's outside and above time. He never had a beginning, and he'll never have any end. And he's uh, what we think of philosophically as an end. That is, he's the purpose of everything. He's the origin of everything, and he's the purpose of everything. Uh, through him, all things are created, John says in John chapter 1. And apart from him... Nothing was created, and Paul calls Jesus, Romans 10, 4, the telos, or telos, uh, telos, it should be pronounced. The, he's the end, he's the goal, he's the fulfillment of the law. So when we talk about Jesus as the Alpha and Omega, we wanna get, I want to just give you two words. Ontology, which we already talked about a little bit. Ontology is, um, is the study of being. So what we're saying is that Jesus in his being was all these things. He not only uh, did these things, and uh, he not only... Um, so, you know, in essence, it's not just that Jesus uh, was the, the example in the way, but he, he is this, in, the, in essence, in his being. He's not just the pattern, but... Uh, but then he, he uh, lived out the pattern. He ministered the pattern. So he did both. Um, so w when we're talking about ontology and theology, just to get back to that, ontology is the study of being. And so what we're saying is that Jesus is the ultimate man. You want to know what it, it's like to be a mature human being? Know Jesus. He's the ultimate prophet. You want to know, understand Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Elijah? or uh, any of the other prophets, going all the way back to uh, um, Abel or the, and so forth, then understand Jesus, because you can't understand Abel 
and you can't understand Elijah unless you understand Jesus. And you can't understand Jesus unless you understand Abel and Elijah, because that's the way God designed it to be revealed. Um, so um, Jesus is, is um, the measure and the purpose. There's the phrase I was looking for. He's so of, of all things. He, he's, uh, he's how we measure what a, what a priest is or a high priest. But he's the purpose of what it means to be a high priest. And he not only is that in his being, but he did that in his in his earthly ministry. I hope I hope I'm being clear. Now, the next thing we want to look at is just I'm kind of giving us some con- concepts because we're going to move real quickly once we have some concepts laid. I want to look at the word types. The word types is tupas in the Greek, and uh, it's probably pronounced something like tupas, I, uh, but. Uh, it means to prefigure or foreshadow. Uh, a type is a die, like in in the in industry, uh, or a mold or a cast. It's a pattern. It's a model, a form, example, warning, sample, analogy, or imitation. A type is a uh, is a prefiguring. It's something that is uh, that in, involves getting into these next two words: the archetype and prototype. So. Archetype and prototype, the word type is in the Bible, by the way. And unfortunately, in, in the New American Standard Bible, the Greek word tupas is in the English 15 times. But they only translate it as type two times for some reason. Uh, they translate it as pattern, example, foreshadowing, things like that. So, uh, but the Greek word, so you kind of miss sometimes by not seeing the Greek Uh the Greek word of a type is, is a major concept in the New Testament, and Christ is the fulfillment of all types. And there's types of all kinds of other important things in God, like there's type, the tabernacle was a type of Jesus himself became the true tabernacle, and the church today is the true tabernacle. But the tabernacle in the wilderness was an was a archetype or a prototype. It was a foreshadowing of the true church. And so was Solomon's temple and Ezra and Nehemiah's rebuilt temple and even Ezekiel's vision of a temple that was never built, all of that's a type of us today as the church, the true temple of God. So today we're focusing on types of Christ, though. But an archetype or a prototype is the original pattern or model from which all things are made. I can't believe there's a bug running on my paper. Uh, what is the original pattern, a model from which all things of the same kind are copied or on which they are based, a model or first form. Like in programming, you know, the programmers uh, might create a piece of software or whatever, and they might spend countless man hours getting that software right. But once they have it right, they can copy it thousands of times. Really what we're trying to do here in Grace Christian Fellowship is get back to the biblical pattern of the church for all things. And at, once there's a model in place, we can begin to grow more quickly and begin to uh, begin to multiply churches according to that model. But you, you've got to have uh, a significant core group of leaders that, that, ha- that have the knowledge, the wisdom, the character, the maturity, the experience to model what the church is supposed to be. And what we're trying to do is rediscover and restore the full biblical model here. Um, that's really what this is all about. 
So another word, uh, so archetype and prototype, those don't appear in the Bible. However, they appear in all kinds of theological writings. And if you're going to consider uh, the characters of the Old Testament at all, you really kind of need to know that many of them are archetypes or prototype. And the next word that that rolls into is the antitype, who is Christ. Uh, an antitype is a person or thing that's foreshadowed or represented by a type or symbol, especially a character or event in the New Testament prefigured in the Old Testament. So Moses, when he says, as we're going to talk about today, that that God will raise up a prophet like me and you shall listen to him, he is the prototype or the archetype of which Christ is the antitype. Does that make sense? So that's that's kind of an important concept when you're reading your Bible to see how many people things, and so forth, are foreshadowing Christ in that way. And those are words I would encourage you to commit to memory and know those words and use them. Now, with, with what we've said so far as our base, the rest of the time I'm going to try to take a tornado uh, tour through biblical types and topics uh, that we listed above. In other words, I'm going to actually cover, there's uh, 12 of them on your page. I uh, dropped a few. And then I realized after I finished this, and it was, it was uh, I didn't really want to get back up and work on it again, because uh, I had 30 minutes to uh, get a rest, and, so, um, and then get back up. So I, I decided just to try to remember to talk about it. But I, I really, I, I dropped out uh, Samuel, uh, sorry, first and second Samuel. I dropped Samuel off the list because I wanted to stay at 12 instead of 13, and also I was running out of... Uh, however, I inadvertently left Aaron off the list, which is an unbelievably terrible mistake. So hopefully, hopefully, uh, like my kids used to tease each other when they did, like they would have said to each other when they were little, do you even know God? Like, how, how could you leave Aaron off this list? So um, I'm trying to uh, just give us some of the most uh, important uh archetypes or prototypes. Now, that you you got to use that stuff wisely because uh, as we talked about with the great I am sayings of Jesus at the start of this 17 weeks ago, at the start of this Christology series, and we talked about the logos, in a sense, Jesus is actually the archetype and the prototype and the antitype of all these things. He's the source from which they come, and he's the ultimate model. So when we use those words, we kind of have to use them contextually. Uh, you know, we're, you know, when we're talking about Moses, actually Jesus is the ultimate Moses, and Moses is a copy of him. Just like marriage is a wonderful thing, but marriage is um, a picture of something much greater: Christ and His Church. So for a Christian community is a great thing, but Christian community is just a picture of the more perfect archetype, the Trinity, who lives in perfect community and in fellowship from all eternity and will for all eternity. And, uh, and, and we are to pattern our families, our communities after the Trinity. So Jesus is really the archetype, the prototype, and the antitype, but in order to communicate, we'll... Uh, We'll talk about these uh, Old Testament scripture guys as foreshadowings or types of Christ. 
And uh, so let's, uh, we're going to just go through the scriptures. Um, I didn't have enough room to list a lot of scriptures. You might want to have a pen handy. I would encourage you to jot down some scriptures because develop these things in your own mind a little bit. Because um, I'll probably mention a bunch of scriptures as we go that I didn't list, put on the list. I only got about two minutes per person, so let's talk about it. Adam, uh, at, Jesus is, uh, Adam is the prototypical uh, Jesus. Jesus is the antitypical Adam. Jesus is the son of man, which is Ben Adam in Hebrew. Um, that title of Jesus is used um, in Daniel 7 to foreshadow the Christ. And um, also, it's used by the gospel writers in, because Jesus is constantly identifying himself as the Messiah by calling himself Ben Adam, the son of Adam. Right? He's the second Adam. And uh, like in all of these Old Testament, Adam failed in, in his commission to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. And he failed in his obedience to God. And Jesus was obedient in all things, even to the point of death. So Jesus became a life-giving spirit. Adam brought sin and death to the whole human race. Jesus brings uh, new creation, new life, and redemption, and, and, and restores you to the purpose of God, which is way bigger than redemption, as we've been talking about lately. So, uh, Romans 5.14 says that nevertheless, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, because Adam failed in his mission, that's why. Even before the law was given, men were lawbreakers. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. That is, Adam is a type of Christ. He's a foreshadowing. Um, both were created as full human beings. Both were created without sin. Yet Adam sinned, and, and Jesus did not. 1 Corinthians 15 says that, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Those who are in Christ are made alive. All who are born of Adam are born spiritually dead and will physically die, because in the day you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. And spiritual death eventually begets physical death. Uh, it works its way through all of creation and all of your being and so forth, just as Christ becoming, when, you're, when you receive him, that life that you receive begins to work its way through all of your being and eventually th to reconcile all things to God and restore all of creation beyond what it initially was and takes it to what God always intended it to be. So the more you flow in and fellowship and meditate on the life of Christ, the more you, uh, the life of Christ is manifest in you, the more you'll start to be restored to, to all of whom God intended for human beings to be in the first place, and you in particular. The last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. So uh, we only got a couple minutes for I could, these. I wish I could preach uh, two or three messages just on that. Abel. Abel is, in a way, the first prophet of the Bible, unless you want to argue that Adam was or Eve. Uh, but Abel prefigured Christ. He was killed by his brother as Christ was killed by his brothers. He was killed because he was righteous, and his righteous offering, uh, you know, Jesus said, this is the reason the world hates me, because I 
testify to it that its deeds are evil. The reason Cain hated Abel was because Cain brought his offerings by the works of the flesh out of no faith, not according to what uh, the slaying of animals that they should that they learned from their Adam and Eve when God slayed an animal to, and with you know the shedding of blood, all things are perfect and so forth. They you know and Cain, a wicked man in his heart, uh, was jealous of his brother's righteousness. And he hated, more than that, he hated having his unrighteousness exposed, which it was by Abel the prophet. So Abel is a type of Christ. Hebrews 11 says, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. That should be, that's something that when you get to be 60, you think about more and more and more. I'm, you think about, like, I want to grow enough in the Lord. I want to leave something that still speaks for centuries when we, after, after I'm gone. So um, Hebrews 12, 24 says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant into the, into the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the words, than the blood of Abel. Um, the reason it, uh, we're going to look at Luke 7, 11, 47 through 51 next week, so we'll skip that other reference to Abel. Um, that on, on well, well, we'll talk about that next week. So um, the, the blood of Jesus, as we've said many times, on, is, speaks better than Abel because uh, Abel's blood was, they were both killed by their brother, but Abel's blood was shed involuntarily. Christ's blood was shed voluntarily. He said, I take, lay down my own life. No one can take it from me right? Abel's blood cries from the grounds for vengeance. Jesus' blood cries from the mercy seat of heaven for forgiveness to all men. Uh, So, and Jesus' blood ever lives and still cries out for forgiveness. So, um, Let's move on to Enoch. Enoch prefigures the ascension. Remember that the Bible says that uh, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. God, uh, Enoch and Elijah were two figures of the Old Testament that God just took them directly to heaven. They didn't die and, and rise again and so forth. They prefigured Christ's ascension uh, and they were foreshadowings of Christ's ascension. And uh, Enoch... Uh, is talked about in Hebrews 11. By faith he was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him for he obtained the witness that before being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And if you notice, he was pleasing to God by faith. Faith always leads to good behavior. Faith always leads to righteousness. Faith always leads to good works. But it's never the other way around. No performance-based good works can ever make you acceptable to God or earn the favor of God. But when God puts his favor on you in Christ and you, and you turn to him and receive him, that favor will recreate you to do the works of God. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Is right after, and that's Ephesians 2.10, right after Ephesians 2.8 and 9 that says, By grace you were saved through, through faith. And that not of yourself, it's the gift of God that no one should, should boast. For we are his workmanship. Be, receiving the gift of grace through faith, which is all authored and initiated by God, 
leads to good works. And that's Enoch lived a life that was pleasing to God because of his great faith with God, which is a relational word. He had a great relationship with God. And so he prefigures, he becomes a foreshadowing of Christ. Noah was a prophet of righteousness, and he, like Abel, spoke to his generation. And, uh, of course, Abel had a limited number of people he spoke to because there weren't that many people born yet. But uh, uh, whereas uh, Noah had a bigger audience, but he was a prophet of righteousness, and he testified like Christ to the world that his deeds were evil. That's what the Bible says about him. So um, Noah was in the viticulture. I wish I could go there because of the whole miserroneous thing that people who been taught that wine is bad and so forth, believe that he sinned when he made wine. And, okay. No, it, the, all of that is actually a foreshadowing of Christ. Christ, what he, Christ was the ultimate, he's the vine, and he's the vine, the source of the vine's life, and he's the ultimate vine keeper. And so Noah actually in his tent, growing of grapes and tending of grapes was actually in making of wine, which the wine is what we use in the communion, all of that foreshadowed Christ. All of that was an extremely good thing, uh, unlike it's been turned around in our day. Okay, so um, Noah was a builder of the ark and, uh, and uh, a long-term project, and he had to build it exactly how God told him. Uh, Christ is the ultimate builder of the church, and the ark is a foreshadowing of the church. And we, as the body of Christ, cannot continue what our culture has done and, and build church after church after ch church, not according to biblical patterns. We, what, we're, what we're doing to rediscover and restore biblical patterns is actually necessary. It's not an option. It's the commandment of God. You know, like people will say, well, I just don't choose to think about that. No, you, you must. We have no authorization to build churches according to man's patterns and man's teachings and man's structures and man's goals and so forth. So Noah built the ark the way God told him to. Uh, Noah is, the, is a progenitor, that is, out of him came the, just like out of Adam, so he's actually a, a second Adam. Wait, you just said Christ was the second Adam. Christ also called the last Adam. Noah is actually a prefigure of Christ as the second Adam because out of him came all of life, uh, all of human life. So Noah's actually a for, great foreshadowing of Christ. So when you, when you read Noah, you, you know, Genesis 6 through 10, you should probably stop and have Holy Ghost breakdowns and worship and dance and, and then get back to reading. That's really because when you start to encounter Christ, how can you not uh, go nuts with worshiping him? Abraham is a type of Christ, although uh, often he's also a type of the Father. Uh, he's righteous. He's a sojourner. Uh, remember how Jesus said, the, uh, the guys in Luke said, uh, Lord, Jesus will follow you wherever you should go. And Jesus knew, called their bluff. 
And he said, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You're going to follow me? I don't even, I don't have air conditioning. <laughs> I don't have padded pews, uh, you know, and I have long sermons. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and I don't even have a sound system. So, uh, and I make demands on my disciples to do things like go fishing and find a gold coin in the fish's mouth and pay our taxes with that. You know? <laughs> uh, and I tell them to walk on water and heal the sick and cast out demons and cleanse lepers. Are you sure you, you know, Christ was a sojourner. He had no portion or ministry in his life. Uh, we're not going to cover Levi, but the Levites, well, we're, we'll cover them a little bit because they're descendants of Aaron. And are we up to that point yet? Uh, yeah, we should probably cover Aaron. Well, no, after Isaac. After Joseph, right about Moses. But um, the, the, remember one of the great lines that you should see many times. It probably says this so dozen times in the Old Testament. It says that when they were, especially in the book of Joshua, of course, when they were portioning, portioning up all the land, they gave this part to Naphtali and this part to Asher and this part to Reuben and so forth. But it says that the, they gave no portion to the sons of Levi, because the Lord himself was their portion. And that is who Jesus is. That's who we are. You know, I'm amazed at how many Christians are all, like, chasing a bigger house and a more social prestige and bigger promotions. You know, do the best you can to, to steward finances. The finances can be used for great kingdom things, like sending your kids to better schools, and building Christ church and so forth. But ch check deeply what's really working in your heart. You have no portion in this life except Christ. The, you, know, you know, the Bible says that the Lord comes quickly and his reward is with him. Do you know why? Because he is the reward. Sorry. I get a little passionate about this kind of stuff. Sorry. He, he's, he, you're, you're, you're not going to take your Volvo uh, with you. You're, you're, your portion is the Lord himself. And you have no place that really is yours in this life. And Noah prefigured that. Abraham, as the sojourner, he had a promise of the land, but he never got to have the land. And it was his descendants over 400 years later that began to take the land. And that went through about a 600-year process. It was a 1,000 years until the promise of the land, which was just a foreshadowing of the great promise of, of us, of the New Testament church taking the whole world. Uh, he was uh, Abraham was obedient and... and um, and there's some scriptures that you could study about Abraham to develop this more, but because I'm almost out of time. Isaac prefigures Jesus as the true seed of Abraham. And he's the true lamb. So in Genesis 24, you get a microcosm of the whole Bible. The story of the whole Bible, the historical narrative of the whole Bible, it's actual history. The facts are literally true. They did happen, but they tell a story. In Genesis 24, it tells the story of the whole Bible in one chapter. God the Father is typified by Abraham, 
who has a son, a seed, Isaac, who's t- typical of God the Son, and he sends his servant, who's a type of the Holy Spirit. No, no, why? You know, one of the reasons the Holy Spirit's neglected in the church is because he doesn't draw attention to himself. The more you experience the Holy Spirit, the more he'll draw attention to the Father and the Son. And so uh, he, he, he calls himself a servant, and he wrote the passage. And the servant has gifts, uh, which is a foreshadowing of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and he goes to a faraway land, which speaks of the, the Lord coming to earth and then the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost and the fact that, that God will continue to work through all the world to bring a bride back for himself. And he says, be sure not to take her from the sons and daughters of Canaan, because what's saying is you can't be part of the bride of Christ unless you're made righteous in Christ and, and avail yourself of the holy garments uh, as a lifestyle that are, that are provided for you. You can't be part of the bride of Christ and be living in spiritual whoredom as Israel was doing. And we're going to talk about next week is Israel is the great whore and how uh, God judged Israel for it. And so uh, Genesis 24 is, is a whole story of the whole Bible in one chapter. <laughs> Excuse me. And Isaac is uh, a type of the Son of God. Uh, then another important way is that in Genesis 22, 8, now that Abraham is uh, actually a, a Hebrew way of, of spelling it over in English, and I've taken this from the complete Jewish uh, Bible and the... the um, 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 what is it called? Um, the Orthodox Jewish Bible, because it, uh, the English Bibles just missed the point. And it says, God will provide himself the lamb, a burnt offering, my son. He's not saying God will provide for himself, as the English Bible is saying. The Hebrew is actually saying that God will provide himself the lamb. And so the whole story with Isaac in Genesis 22 is a foreshadowing of Christ, that, God, that the father would kill his only son. And his son would be God himself. So beautiful foreshadowing of, of, uh, of Christ, one of the best in the whole Bible. God will provide himself the lamb. So you, the, the idea that Jesus is the lamb of God doesn't start in Exodus 12 like most people think. It starts in Genesis 22 and gets developed in Exodus 12 further and, uh, of course, much further in Leviticus and so forth. Uh, moving on, Joseph. Joseph was the beloved of his father. He was rejected by his brothers, like Jesus. Uh, they did a type of killing him by throwing him in the hole and selling him to Egypt, but and then bloodying the, his coat of many colors, which, you know, uh, coat, coats and garments speak of righteousness and so forth. And the Bible says, out of Egypt I called my son, they sent Joseph to Egypt. So all of that is, is a foreshadowing of Christ. Remember how Christ had to flee Herod and so forth, who was the king of the Jews when Jesus, he was actually the pretender when Jesus was the real king of the Jews. And Herod was a Jew in league with the Romans, despicable to God, and tried to murder the very son of God himself very much like Jesus and are like Joseph's brothers. Um, so um, 
Joseph was eventually raised up, and he became the savior of the covenant people of God. And he goes on, as we'll see next week, we'll look at Jesus' covenant lawsuit against Israel. Uh, Joseph, they come to him at the end of his life, and his brothers still haven't changed, and they're still conniving, lying manipulators. They're worthless fellows, sons of Belial, and they uh, say to Joseph, um, our father before he died told us to go to you know to told you to go easy on us and so forth because they're afraid now that their dad's dead that he's gonna take justice on them and he says as for you you meant it for evil but god meant it for good to bring about this present state that the, that the people of god would be saved so you're we're gonna see all that next week uh moses i'm i'm really out of time I don't want to do another week on this. Moses is the prophet lawgiver. Uh, Jesus is the ultimate lawgiver. Uh, maybe we will spend one more week on this. Because, boy, I hate to miss Moses and Aaron. Yeah, let's uh, let's uh, just pick it up this tomorrow or tomorrow. Next week, I'm thinking about starting Sunday school at 9 o'clock or 8.30. Anybody for that? <laughs> a, few, a few volunteers. It would, it would be so nice to be able to give you guys so much more. And um, I'm just out of time. And next week, we'll look at Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Elijah. Uh, since we'll have extra time, we'll probably throw in Samuel back in, for, especially for Second Samuel's sake. And, uh, and uh, we'll look at how, again, Jesus is the quintessential man, prophet, sojourner, savior, high priest, lawgiver, judge, and king which if you remember the beginning of this section on, we looked at how Jesus was the Lagos in the great I am. And that's really saying the same thing. He is ontology. He is the source of being. All things are created by him, for him, through him, and to him. Amen.